0: My name is Marina Stelianu, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues here at Dickinson College. I'm joined by Anna Lavofsky, who's an assistant professor of law at Harvard Law School and the author of Vice Patrol, Cops, Courts, and the Struggle Over Urban Gay Life Before Stonewall. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So to start off, what inspired your path
1: of research for this book? It's a great question, and I increasingly believe that it's impossible for me to really answer that question without giving you my full biography, but I'll keep it short. So I came to my PhD program knowing that I wanted to to work in the history of sexuality and the history of gay life. In particular, these were the books that really brought me into history to begin with, and most histories of sexuality are typically told stories of community building and political awakening. They're ground-up stories. Policing tends to hover in the background, but it's rarely the central focus. I think partly I I was always curious about the operations of the law itself. I wanted to, to, to dig deeper into that story. But partway through my first year in my graduate program, I completely, by happenstance, stumbled on these sources, which were these police manuals from the 1930s and 40s and 50s that addressed, among other things, the policing of queer life. And I was just so struck uh, by these sources and and how very literally they tried to visualize sexual difference as something that was visible on the body. Um, And when I when I found those sources, I I thought you there's there's a story here, there's there's something to be told. So that's really what brought me to the project.
0: That's so fascinating. Was there anything in particular that really surprised you as you conducted the research? Yeah, so a a
1: number of things surprised me. I think the most surprising part of the story is is the thing that still surprises readers the most when they pick up the book, um, which is just the sheer amount of contestation that attended anti-gay policing in the mid-20th century, in in part because prior histories focus on the experiences of of the LGBT community uh, in response to legal oppression, on, on these legal struggles against policing uh, they tend to focus on the adversarial relationship between the queer community on the one hand uh, and the state on the other. Um, and what I found is when you, when you peer behind the curtain of the state and to the internal uh, operations of policing itself, you see that there's actually great, great ambivalence and contestation and struggle within, within the, the, the law itself over this form of enforcement, uh, and in particular, judges often really didn't buy into the police's campaigns against gay men, It's primarily for a variety of reasons these campaigns focused on men for a range of reasons including some admirable ideological reasons. Some judges were simply more liberal, more progressive than police officers, uh, but also for for a range of other pragmatic institutional uh, political reasons that that were less admirable just based on, on judges' jealousy of their own time or, or their, their distaste for certain police tactics, or their, their, their sympathies for rich defendants that they, for example, didn't see in a lot of other cases. Uh, and so the thing that surprised me the most, I think, is, is uh, how situating anti-gay policing within the broader politics of the criminal justice system revealed this, this real wealth of, of struggle in an institution that had previously been seen as, as, as somewhat more, if not monolithic, than at least somewhat more consistent in in its priors.
0: That's amazing. I noticed that when I was reading through your book to research for this event. So speaking of judges and judicial use of knowledge, one of your specialties is judicial use of professional knowledge, and you highlight the use of psychiatric knowledge. Can you speak to other methods of professional knowledge in law?
1: Yes. So absolutely. You know, it's, 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 it's a huge question. So maybe I'll I'll speak to the subject that, that I've looked at most closely in my research, which is police knowledge. So, so uh, in addition to, to work on this book, I spent the last few years uh, working on, on, on some more contemporary uh, research about uh, judicial relationships with police witnesses, and particularly this phenomenon of, of judicial deference to police expertise, uh, the notion that police officers uh, based on their training, based on their experience, bring certain unique insights to their work, and the judges ought to defer to, to police officers uh, in light of those insights. So uh, this is part of the, the story of, of the book as well, uh, which you might have uh, noticed as you, reading it, as you were reading it. The typical story, which is something that, I, that I've uh, written on, is that essentially judges tend to vastly, vastly over-defer to police expertise. For a variety of reasons, including instrumental reasons, a lot of judges just aren't inclined to to meddle in in police tactics. And also I argue because again, of this unique uh, institutional relationship between judges uh, and police officers, one of my arguments in in other work is that judges are exposed by by dint of their unique uh, professional background and professional position to a a uniquely positive understanding of, of police expertise Uh, because of essentially the the selected glimpses of police professional knowledge that make their way into court. And this includes watching police officers testify as expert witnesses. This includes uh, attending training programs or or, uh, academy graduations, for example, uh, for police officers at conferences uh, for police officers. This includes the the entire world of suppression hearings, uh, in, in which Police officers commonly rely on their expertise in context, coincidentally, where their expertise yielded actual evidence of crime. Uh, In those cases where there was no evidence of crime uh, discovered, of course, judges just aren't going to hear about it. And so one one, uh, argument uh, there is is that judges are essentially structurally biased in favor of of, of police knowledge based on, on the unique context in which they encounter police knowledge. And part of what's interesting about the, this, uh, the story in the book, and, and this is not one that uh, pertains outside the, the case of, of anti-gay policing at mid-century as well, is that uh, in the book, police officers really break from this trend of emphasizing their own expertise in order to gain favor with the judiciary and they actually downplay their expertise about uh, gay communities and it's it's precisely for the reasons we were just discussing this judicial skepticism of of a lot of vice uh, uh, policing uh, precisely because judges aren't fully sold on the project of of anti-gay policing and because they're especially suspicious of what they see as manipulative entrapment tactics or enticement tactics It, it really doesn't help the police to come into court and explain how they drew on their specialized knowledge about gay culture to entrap a suspect into a solicitation, that that would only fuel traditional skepticism. Uh, And so instead, police officers are much more likely to come in and downplay their own professional knowledge and essentially essentially say, uh, I I came into a bar, I stood there, I did nothing. The the defendant approached me spontaneously. Um, Essentially, there's nothing there to know. And so in the book, this is just one glimpse of a broader uh, phenomenon that I've also looked at uh, in some other works. There's an entire world uh, of judicial oversight where claims of expertise actually raise judicial skepticism uh, of police tactics, of the legality of police tactics, because they either entangle police officers in fundamentally immoral practices like entrapment, Or they raise concerns about power imbalances between police officers uh, and the suspects they're manipulating or or otherwise maneuvering uh, into into crime or or into into confessions, into evidence.
0: Obviously, so many of the sodomy laws really have their roots in the church and in the Bible. Do you believe that these laws that criminalize gay life actually achieve a separation between religious ideology and secular law?
1: Right. So should we see, see antithodomy laws or laws targeting queer life as, as essentially just vestiges of, of, of more, a more religious ideology? I, I think my core takeaway is that it, it's actually hard to draw that clear uh, a link, not because there's not a link there, but because I, I think some of these laws were overdetermined. There were so many reasons that states passed laws targeting criminalizing sexual difference in these years and partly it was absolutely it was just seen as immoral and of course that's impossible to to, to separate from uh, this religious understanding of what moral or moral sexual conduct is but part of the story in the book uh, is that there were there were really a variety of reasons that i that i think motivated these laws and, and particularly motivated police campaigns partly it's anti-gay policing, uh, including uh, sodomy laws, but especially misdemeanor laws, which is a, really a, a stronger tool of, of the vice squad, were part of a, just this broader project of policing the orderly city. Certainly that was that was moralistic at, at heart, but it, it was driven less by an actual concern with, with, the, with saving the souls of the citizenry uh, or enforcing morality uh, than with just preserving a certain social order and a social hierarchy where those Uh, at the center of the political system could essentially enforce their own aesthetic preferences uh, against those on the edges, or at the very least could save themselves the the trouble of having to to deal with and to see the practices of people who weren't uh, like them. Partly, I think uh, these campaigns were driven by institutional jockeying and bids for power within the police and and, and attempts to, to raise the standing of the police. In the early 1950s, in Washington, uh, in particular, uh, anti-gay policing responded to something that's now referred to as the Lavender Scare, where essentially Senate Republicans who were just trying to find some kind of political cudgel against the the, the Truman administration created a scandal about gay men and women uh, in federal government and the importance of purging these employees uh, in order to protect American national security. And so that's already, that's that's one example of, of a political power play in itself, uh, but, but the local police department, essentially led by this extremely spectacular, somewhat self-serving police chief, uh, seized on, on, on this uh, interest in, in anti-gay arrests to, to raise the profile of, of the uh, Metropolitan Police itself and to, to essentially show, demonstrate to the public that the police was doing significant work by going after this new line of, of, of criminal so-called uh, that was suddenly not just a moral threat, but a, but a political threat. And uh, another dynamic that I track in the book is, is how you know, part of the rise of anti-gay policing these years is just part of a bureaucratic move towards police professionalization, where police chiefs are trying to, to standardize and streamline poli- police practices to weed out corruption uh, and to boost efficiency, splinter police work uh, into increasingly specialized units, uh, and once uh, you created a specialized unit uh, that's targeted to the enforcement of sex offenses, of course, that unit is going to face institutional pressure to demonstrate its productivity through arrests. And it's just much easier going after gay cruising sites than it is to find violent predatory sex offenders. Uh, and so part of the story here uh, really is just a managerial story uh, of, uh, in, in a sense, the supply of, of police time and resources creating the demand for the use of of those resources against queer communities.
0: Thank you. So there've been so many positive changes in the last several decades for the queer community between the mid 20th century and our current society. But do you see any holdovers from this sort of anti-gay era in today's society?
1: Absolutely. There's a sense in which the book, I think, the book focuses on what I refer to as a regulatory bubble, which is this period of time where the police are actually spending enormous resources to surveil and to enforce uh, the criminal law against uh, a, a type of defendant that, that typically doesn't attract police resources, which is essentially middle class, sometimes wealthy uh, white people. And, and so I, I think that the demands of that type of enforcement created a form of, of policing that wasn't certainly wasn't unique to the, to the mid 20th century, but I, but I think is meaningfully different from, from policing today. And this is in, in particular, this is sort of the use of incredibly stealthy, rather innovative, frankly, tactics to infiltrate often hidden spaces uh, of queer social and sexual life. Um, and this is a focus in the book on, uh, for example, entrapment tactics uh, against gay men, also clandestine surveillance. Of public bathrooms, which is another uh, common site of cruising. I, I do think it is the case that by the end of the 1960s, we see those especially intrusive, high effort, let's call them, um, police tactics on their way out, as there's a broader public shift towards, well, a suspicion of, of policing more broadly in, in some liberal circles, but certainly there, there's a shift towards feeling like this type of uh, anti-gay policing is just a waste of public resources, that it's the the amount of work that's going into this, this form of enforcement simply isn't worth the the, the significance of, of the laws being enforced. That leaves us with, with a broader world of policing that's not really centered in, in this book, but that absolutely defines the experiences of a lot of uh, police individuals, uh, and and especially non-white, non-privileged individuals, which is just The the harassment, sometimes brutality uh, by uniformed police officers as part of the broader work of policing the orderly city and and again, uh, broader work of enforcing quality of of life laws, vagrancy laws to to essentially impose a certain middle class Protestant morality uh, on the use of public space. That's something that absolutely persists today. Uh, and, and the most visible example is, of course, policing of trans individuals and phenomenons like walking while trans. That, that, I think, is there's a direct line between that type of police work today and uh, the policing that, that, that occurred in, in urban settings in the 1950s and 1960s. And as to even as to the um, the more surreptitious tactics that i described in the book i think it's important to recognize that, that these have really been sidelined this is this is no longer the bread and butter of vice departments but they haven't exactly been retired so there was recently a, a headline about an undercover sting in a public park aimed at, at arresting gay men with some regularity every, every few years you actually see headlines like that that their their police officers still engage in the practice of uh, enticing men in, in parks and, and public bathrooms, um, so I, I certainly that tactic has has not left us in full. Um, but I think more broadly, the focus of of, of anti LGBT policing has has shifted towards the use the use of essentially spectacular force. And by spectacular, I, I don't mean uh, that there is anything uh, especially unusual. Uh, about it, it's 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 very quotidian in a way. But the use of, of visible shows of force and intimidation through uniformed policing against most commonly people of color, poor people, people who who don't have the the, the the resources that a lot of the defendants in the 1950s that I that I discuss had.
0: In the same vein of modern legal tactics against. Queer communities. Are you familiar with the "Don't Say Gay" bill that's being proposed in Florida? So I was yes. just curious if you see any similarities between that sort of situation and these ideas of public morality.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So you know, and, and I think this also relates to your earlier question about the the moral foundations of a lot of these laws. So I, obviously, there's uh, sort of at the highest level of generality, there's a the queer through line of states essentially legislating to endorse what they see as, as moral or moral practices and also to send expressive messages about what what are, are good or, or bad social practices. So I I think at its broadest absolutely the, these laws are an attempt to define the outer boundaries of what's acceptable public conduct that we should expose our children to. Uh, there's also I think a more you know a more specific through line, which is the the, the focus on children or the use of children to express fears uh, about sexual difference that, that uh, might or not might not actually be specific to that context. I mean, in, in, in mid-century as well, a lot of this policing, I, I'm not sure whether it was driven or justified, but certainly it was justified by the ostensible threat to to youth, that this notion uh, that gay men in particular were, were going to to prey on, on unsuspecting teenagers or, or boys, uh, even as the police's own exposure to gay life made them well aware that this was very, very really not the case, that this was a completely uh, unusual, unusual, unfounded concern in the, the daily practices of, of gay life in American cities. So I, I think that you know, the, the, the exploitation of, of the language of, of concern about children is, is, is I think, something that, that's really consistent. In this story as well, and then the final thing that, as you're as you asking the question, so I, I think that you know that the, the relative surreptitiousness or the visibility or invisibility of gay life, and, and something that was really characteristic of anti-gay policing at mid-century, was this uh, duality in which the police insisted that the reason that anti-gay policing was an important police project was because gay life presented a public threat or a public nuisance, that it was visible uh, and that the police were were protecting the public from having to confront this visible, visible nuisance. While at the same time, the police themselves were laboring to make that world visible. The world actually required uh, incredible planning, uh, insight, training to to recognize a, a cruising spot, to infiltrate it. And so there there's something uh, similarly ironic, I guess, about that these bills are, are aimed uh, at, in, su- in some sense, at declaring gay life uh, unspeakable or unimaginable for children, that we want to to prevent children from having to confront the idea of, of, of this world, of, of the, this, this part of existence, while at the same time just bringing increased attention to that world and, and drawing increased attention to both to the, the project of anti-gay policing and in that to, to the persistence and, and the centrality of, of, of gay life in Florida as, as, ever, as everywhere else, of course. So I think there's something self-defeating in the same uh, way about these bills as, as I, there was in the 1950s about that form of policing.
0: Thank you. So in your opinion, why is it so critical to understand uh, LGBTQ history from both a legal perspective as well as the sort of cultural wow. ground-up perspective?
1: Yes, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, As as a historian, I have to believe that there's just value in in recovering knowledge of of our history. So I I think just knowing what happened and correcting, not correcting the record, uh, enriching the record, I I think is is, is valuable in itself. Beyond that, I do think that looking at the history of gay life from this more legalistic perspective, I think it reveals some things of note, both about the history of gay life and about the work of, of law enforcement. I think one thing it reveals is, is the sometimes surprising legacy uh, of certain seemingly familiar moments in gay life. One a phenomenon that I track throughout the book is how cultural developments, for example, that are remembered as, as bearing one political valence often redound in the legal system to bear a very, very different valence. So phenomenon that are remembered as relatively liberal actually turn out to drive certain forms of legal regulation in really in very direct ways and certain forms of, of knowledge or ways of ways of understanding gay life that are remembered as regressive, conservative, devastating to, to individuals turn out to, to, to meaningfully soften the hand of the law as it applies to, to a lot of these suspects. And so I, I think that peering into the operations of the legal system itself in that sense enriches our understanding of the cultural history of gay life. And of the the sometimes uneven, sometimes surprising path towards claiming greater civil rights, claiming greater legal rights for the queer community. I also think it's this really striking case study for the operations of policing and, and the relationship between police and the courts. And that includes what we discussed about just the sheer struggle that attended this line of policing and the amount of discretion and the creativity which I know sounds like I'm endorsing it, it's not necessarily a good thing depending on who's exercising creativity. The amount of, of creativity that was exercised by both judges and police officers in their attempts essentially to shape how the other approached the, the work of, of, of gate policing. I, I think the story is illuminating for that reason. And and finally, you know, one thing that I look at in the book is how it's precisely the the differences in understanding between police officers and judges that actually expanded the possibilities of, of anti-gay policing, that one thing, given particularly given judges' skepticism about a lot of these practices, one thing that really expanded the scope of the police's campaigns uh, is the fact that the legal system at all times made room for multiple competing understandings of gay life, separating police officers from judges. And so certain intrusive police tactics that the police only developed because of their understanding of gay life were ultimately upheld in court because of the court's ignorance about those practices. So I I suggest that it's these epistemic gaps uh, between the different arms of the law that that frustrate potential checks on, on, on police abuses. And that, I think, is a phenomenon that certainly isn't limited to the history of gay life, but it's a phenomenon that's just easier to glimpse in a historical case study where other historians, conveniently for me, have done the work of uncovering the actual cultural codes that drive gay life, and that therefore clue me in to what it is that the police knew and that the judges didn't. I, you know, I, I think one of the the one of the benefits of history, one thing that we get out uh, of history is that uh, it, it allows us to to recognize certain dynamics, institutional dynamics, political dynamics that we're just too close to see. We don't. We just don't have any way of accessing in, in, in the present day, because those certain forms of knowledge, for example, are much more tightly held. I hope for that reason, the book is, is of interest, not just to, to people who are interested in, in, in the history of gay life or in, in mid-20th century history, but in the operations of, of law enforcement more, more broadly today.
0: Thank you. Finally, do you have any newer research or publications that you're really excited about or that you, even if you just started working on it, that we should look out for in the future?
1: Yeah, so I have, you know, I I mentioned that um, the, the book was just one example of a broader phenomenon that I was interested in in terms of when claims of expertise might actually undercut police authority in court. So I've, I've been working on some, some articles looking at this broader trend in contemporary cases, uh, including one piece that just came out with the Yale Law Journal. So if that is at is all of interest, it, it identifies additional cases beyond the entrapment context where that's the case. And otherwise, no, I'm starting to, to very tentatively think of, of a new book project. One, one topic that I think there's just so much more to say about is the, the work of undercover policing uh, and, and police enticement and entrapment tactics. So I, this, is, I, I, this is the first time I am, I am admitting to this project in, in a public forum, but, but I, I think I'm, I'm hoping to develop a book-length project looking specifically at the history of police entrapment and it's both the legal and cultural representations.
0: Well, thank you for sharing. That's
1: very exciting. Well, thank you so much for, for this these terrific questions. It was such a pleasure to discuss the book with you.
0: Of course, thank you. So this concludes our interview on behalf of the Clark Forum at Dickinson College. Thank you again for sitting down and having this conversation with me.
1: Thank you for having me.